You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. This episode of National Security Law Today will feature the audio recorded live at the Democracy and Justice in the Age of Disinformation event held on Law Day, May 1st, 2019, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This event was part of the collaboration between the Standing Committee on Law and National Security and CSIS on the Defending Democratic Institutions Project and the ways in which American judicial and electoral institutions are vulnerable to foreign influence campaigns and Russian hacks. This episode will feature the audio from the panel Understanding the Threat Landscape, with panelists Laura Flint, Director of the Governance Program at the Democracy Fund, Seth Jones, the Director of the Transnational Threats Project at CSIS, Sujit Rahman, an Associate Deputy Attorney General at the U.S. Department of Justice, Suzanne Spaulding, the Director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at CSIS, and Harvey Rishikoff, the Chair of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security's Advisory Board. For links to video of the event, please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. So with that, uh, Seth, can you like sort of help set the table? Many of us are old Russian hands. And um, this is a historic context about this disinformation is not new to the Russians. Can you give us a yeah. sense of how you say this in the context? Yeah, and I should note uh, I've spent on and off the last five years looking at uh, the history of Russian intelligence, uh, including disinformation, forgery campaigns uh, since the Cold War. So that's what this is This is based on. A look at Military Service A, the KGB, and other organizations like that. I think what's, what strikes me as I uh, listened to Suzanne speak earlier, and as I uh, read through the report, uh, obviously, as I paid attention to what we've seen over the last few days and months and even years on Russian activity, is how similar in many ways at least the playbook is to what Russian uh, operations have included over the last several decades. So where I wanted to start is, uh, and there's some differences that I'll highlight, but where I wanted to start is the broader historical uh, strategy uh, from the Russians of active measures. And active measures, for those of you who don't remember uh, what, what existed during the Cold War, included in many ways what Suzanne noted about Russian activity today. And the focus was primarily on um, steps that I'll outline in a moment that benefited Moscow, not just at home, but particularly overseas in what they viewed as a competitive environment, and steps that undermined the US uh, directly, including domestically, um, US operations, foreign policy, economic interests overseas, and then undermine US alliances and relationships with its partners overseas. So really targeted on uh, multiple, multiple objectives. What active measures particularly focused on during the Cold War, we know, and both the, uh, either the declassification or in the, in the case of the Matrokin archives, the stolen uh, information from KGB archives and declassified US archives, gives us a pretty good picture of active measures. They included a couple of things which sound a lot like what we see today. They include things like uh, pretty aggressive disinformation campaigns, ones that really were directed towards undermining 
the United States overseas and faith in U.S. institutions. And, and if people don't remember some of the more successful disinformation campaigns that the Russians ran during the Cold War, probably the most successful one, certainly one of the most successful ones, was the AIDS campaign, where they planted a story in an Indian newspaper, the Express, uh, then had Russian uh, uh, newspapers and Russian, um, various Russian programs in Eastern Europe pick it up that AIDS uh, originated from the, um, from the uh, uh, U.S. laboratory, military laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And so what you had was something that was <coughs> entirely fictitious, spread on multiple forums, and by, interestingly, by the late 1980s, what, what uh, even US medical journals uh, conducting polling in both the United States and overseas, particularly African countries, stunningly found was that this myth, which originated from a Soviet disinformation campaign, had influenced the, the, the views of, in some of the countries polled, uh, a third of the population believed that the US either the intelligence community or the military had manufactured AIDS in laboratories and that was the origin. I mean, it was an incredibly successful case. What makes active, this is what we call active measures, I think just as true in what Suzanne outlined earlier, is if done effectively, it can take on a life of its own. So it's not just uh, a function of intelligence services uh, projecting information out if it's done well, it starts to get picked up and takes on a life of its own in the media or in other forums like that. So I call it active measures uh, because there is a, there's, there's an action component of it even outside of Russian intelligence hands. Uh, there were plenty of other examples of this. We saw forgeries uh, throughout the Cold War. We saw uh, act, uh, agents of influence, the recruitment of journalists or academics to write papers that supported uh, Russian and Soviet interests, the use of front groups, a whole range of activities that uh, have, have uh, sound a lot like what Suzanne outlined earlier. Obviously some differences as we move into the, the uh, uh, present, the, the ideology of, this, of, of the Soviet Union, what was Marxism-Leninism has evolved. Uh, we don't see that ideology anymore, but what we do see is a, a sort of this vociferous anger that where the Soviet Union uh, what happened to it and its downgrading uh, is something that uh, Putin uh, wants back. The, the uh, role of social media is clearly new in what you laid out that we have not really seen historically. Probably the level of polarization in the US, other than maybe Vietnam, uh, has allowed them to exploit political differences. So let me just conclude by highlighting one of the things that has struck me about Russian operations today is how at least to a, a, um, a strategic de uh, degree, the Russians have um, paid close attention to the, the, the literature and psychology. The, the active measures campaigns, including the ones Suzanne uh, outlined, are high volume and multi-channel. That's designed in part uh, because they recognize in psychology that a variety of sources can influence someone's perception of what is real and what is not. It's rapid, it's continuous, and it's repetitive from, again, from multiple channels to influence its audience. It's lack of commitment to objective reality, and it's lack of commitment to consistency becomes important when we have an airliner down in Ukraine, and 
they're tied, weapon systems and Russian-backed rebels are tied to the downing of the airline, what they want in something, in a case like that, is confusion about the causes so it doesn't get tied to Russia. So I, I would just say more broadly, there are some interesting historical parallels to what we're seeing today. I, I would say they've done their homework in many ways on a psychology of influence in looking at what, what uh, psychology tells us works and doesn't work. And with that, I will turn it back. Perfect. Thank you, Seth. I remember once being with a negotiation with a Russian delegation on some issue, and the old Russian looked at me and said, what you have to understand is the true battleground is the six inches between your ears. <laughs> and if we can control that space, you win. then we are winning. Right? So you have the lovely uh, obligation and sort of duty of responding on behalf of uh, prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved in that. What, is, what would you say is the current sort of approach that we're taking now to these threats at the Department of Justice? Well, much of it. First of all, thank you for, for having me here today. It's a, a real pleasure to be here to talk about what's a very serious issue. I, I think uh, Director Ray actually stated it best uh, just last Friday when he was at the Council for Foreign Relations, talking about how the Russian uh, active measure campaign is very much in line with what they've been doing for decades. What is different uh, is the, obviously, the cyber-enabled aspect. You know, they're able to reach us from hundreds, if not thousands, of miles away. And that's what makes it particularly pernicious, because if you don't know who your adversary is, if they're acting covertly, if they're putting themselves up as fellow Americans, you don't have a sense of who they are and what they're trying to do. It's a little bit different when it's, you know, Russia Today or Sputnik which actually, as of now, are registered agents under the FARA, so that's an accomplishment. Um, but it's one thing, when they advertise themselves openly and you can make your own determination about, you know, why are the Russians telling me this or that. But when they pose covertly and try to pass themselves off as fellow Americans, that's what's especially pernicious. Um, and so that's something that we're focused on, uh, particularly uh, at the Department of Justice and the FBI, working with our colleagues in the intelligence community, is making sure that we understand where this information is coming from. Again, we're not in the business of, of arbitrating uh, what's truth or what's not truth. That is absolutely not the role of the government. What we can do, though, is try to identify the source of the information. If that information is coming from abroad, that is something that the American people should know. Um, and so we've developed policies within the Department of Justice uh, that are neutral, that are objective, that are not uh, based on content, but that are focused on, in the appropriate context, elucidating the source of, of, of foreign information, and certainly if it violates criminal law, in the appropriate cases, we'll bring indictments. Those indictments will be detailed, and they'll help inform the American public about what our foreign adversaries are, are doing. Now again, this is not uh, purely limited to cyber activity. Uh, I think as Seth mentioned, and certainly as Suzanne mentioned in her speech, um, these measures are across the spectrum of activity. So it involves real agents. It involves uh, economic espionage in the case of certain other countries. It's, you know, the cyber aspect of it is one piece of a much broader puzzle, uh, broader uh, effort to undermine the liberal Western democratic order. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. What I will say is uh, we've been very, very active in trying to build awareness of the problem. Because that's another part of it, is if you don't know what's happening, it's that much easier for foreign adversaries to take advantage. But the more that we shine a light on the activity and make sure that our citizenry is informed about it, uh, they are much less likely to be effective. Thanks. Um, so, Laura, I guess the question is from where you sit. 
What do you see as sort of the issue that's the most worrisome for you when you think about the attack vector that we, we're experiencing? Thanks, Harvey, and thanks so much, uh, Suzanne, and to CSIS for, for including me in this remarkable event and for the work that you're doing on this incredibly important issue. And I thought I would actually answer that question by kind of trying to put this in a, a larger framework of why we should care about the attacks on our justice system that have been described. Um, so first, you know, we need a strong justice system and fidelity to the rule of law in the way that Dr. Hamry so eloquently described earlier in order to maintain a healthy democracy. And it sounds simple, but I think it sometimes gets lost in all the fray around these issues. And so at Democracy Fund, we're, we're working to strengthen American democracy here at home and to build resilient democratic institutions. And so we're looking at that across a range of, of institutions, but recently, with the kinds of attacks that have been described, we've definitely been looking much more closely at the online public square, at election security, and importantly, at the rule of law, including the integrity of our court system and the independence of law enforcement. So we, we know, of course, in this room, that our system of checks and balances protects against abuse of power, um, and that it, we live in a country where the rule of law is paramount, and that means that everyone has to follow the law. You know, I'm sure we all know the John Adams quote uh, describing a republic as um, a government of laws and not of men. Um, and in part, based on some of the facts that have, were laid out in the Mueller report, I think we need to reckon with the fragility of this system for a whole range of reasons, but I also think it's important to just state that this is also partially in the face of a president whose words and actions have at times suggested that he does not think that the laws apply to him the same as they do to others. Now, I want to get more concrete about the importance of these concepts to maintaining a healthy democratic system overall. Last year, um, Rachel Kleinfeld of the Carnegie Endowment for, in for International Peace, who some of you may know, um, she conducted a comparative study looking at other countries or jurisdictions where democracy had been in decline. And she was looking at a range of little d democratic institutions to assess which were most important for a renewal process, um, kind of trying to look at these comparative examples, in part to provide lessons for the, the US context um, and the kinds of threats that, that have been described. Um, and she concluded that across her case studies, the institutions of justice are a consistent source of resilience and really emphasize the importance of them. In countries that face democratic backsliding, in some of those cases, the executive had co-opted domestic intelligence um, and law enforcement agencies, sometimes to prevent investigations against themselves, sometimes to direct investigation against their enemies. In countries where there had been democratic renewal, both the courts and prosecutorial entities, they obviously vary across different countries, played very key roles in either preventing or fixing damage to institutions. So this is not theoretical. We've seen this in other contexts. And the lesson here is that um, it is incredibly important to maintain both legal and political efforts to protect these institutions from manipulation and to make them as strong as they possibly can be. So, so it's both trustworthy and trusted, right? It's both of those things, and those are different. So if you think that the United States is facing, um, in its, its democratic institutions are facing vulnerabilities right now, then maintaining a strong and independent justice system is absolutely crucial. And that, of course, in turn may well explain, uh, as Suzanne said, why um, Russia is making it um, 
making it a target. Now, I do want to just touch briefly um, on a second point about uh, the fact that our response has been hampered by polarization. Um, and that means that perhaps the response has not been as strong as it, as it, as it could be, given the threat and given the stakes. Um, Suzanne laid this out, so I will not get into detail, but you know, our, uh, our, our electorate right now is fertile ground for a disinformation campaign. We have become very deeply polarized as a country, and just to state what that means, because I think we often refer to it without explicitly uh, defining it, um, it is where your party identification largely predicts your worldview and ideological position rather than vice versa, and the two parties are also moving further and further apart in their views. So this is not new, and this is an important point to make. Political scientists have been studying this and tell us that these trends go back 40 years, but it is certainly much more extreme now, and it is exactly why it has been so much easier to exploit these divisions, as Suzanne said, sometimes pushing two sides of the same debate um, in the Russian disinformation campaigns. And part of the challenge, of course, is that some, not all, but some of the critiques are perfectly valid and the kinds of things that we actually um, need to be keeping close tabs on. So, you know, bottom line, um, we really have to stop looking at this threat through a partisan lens and thinking about, you know, which party benefits, and we've got to treat it as the national security threat that it is and give it the response that it deserves. Let's Great. Um, so when I used to work for the Chief Justice, we had the, the Judicial Conference Committee on International Relations. And we used to say that there were only three exports that the world wanted without question. Uh, one was Coca-Cola, uh, the second were American genes, and the third was American judges. The world was hungry to have the experience of American judges, federal and state. So I think underscoring for us in this room the role of the judiciary and the role it plays in democracy is almost a given. And we are trying to understand and why it's such a great target. So one of the issues I want to pose to the panel is, this panel is trying to understand the, understanding the threat landscape, and part of the threat landscape is ourselves. We have unique First Amendment laws, which make it, as you alluded to, complicated when you want to do particular sort of prosecutions. And part of the channel is social media, which is part of the new element of this particular phase of our interrelations with the Russians. And we have something called Section 230 of the, Common, uh, the Communications Decency Act, which makes the platforms not have an obligation to take down material. And they only take down material on specific issues that have been um, basically carved out, such as uh, child pornography or related drugs. So I'm curious from your perspective, given that landscape that's being exploited, how you approach it, Seth, for understanding that media and what you think the appropriate role is for those new titans inside the space, how you understand it as what's appropriate that you might want to see some legal reform, mm -hmm. and how you understand it as a committed to democracy and free speech, how we deal with this phenomena which is being exploited by our adversaries. Seth. So one, one area that I have been looking at recently is uh, the uh, use of social media platforms, including Facebook, for um, targeting the judiciary, and that is spreading disinformation on platforms, including Facebook. Now, having worked a little bit with Facebook recently, um, one of the things I think that has 
pushed many of these social media companies to be a little bit more sensitive about them as being has been being hauled before Congress, and uh, where the, the uh, good good work by um, uh, by newspaper reporters, investigative journalists, and by congressional committees and by other individuals to highlight examples of targeting the judiciary have been brought to Facebook's attention. And ju just to give a sense of, I think, how we're starting to move in this direction, much like in many of us have also spent time in the counterterrorism arena of identifying extremist uh, use of social media platforms, uh, there is now a major growth in some of the platforms, including Facebook, to um, develop their algorithms to identify targeting of judiciary uh, using their platforms, and then also to educate, because they've reached out to experts to educate their human analysts, because they've got, Facebook will have both, it's, it's algorithms, so it's the, the AI side, and then the, the human experts uh, with help from outside to better understand the methods being used. So we've seen increasingly Facebook take down um, some of these sites, uh, we've seen uh, we've seen them highlighted from tech firms too that have highlighted um, IRIB, so Iranian uh, use of disinformation along these lines, taken down on social media platforms. I think one of the things that has at least uh, made me feel like we're starting to grapple with the problem is that s some of our social media companies have started to invest resources, techno technological and human, into understanding and then taking action quickly. Because I think one of the things that Suzanne highlighted with uh, the Lisa case, for example, or, or others, is the speed of responding is actually quite important. Whether it's taking down or putting something up that, uh, un that undermines the myth, that's quite important. So you know there has been progress. I can't speak for all social media platforms. Uh, looking inside of the Facebook box, though, makes me hopeful that some of these platforms have improved or are improving. So you know um, your boss is testifying this morning, um, and that's what I heard. <laughs> and like all events in Washington, is focused. And Senator Graham, by beginning, said that he acknowledged the fact that one aspect of the Mueller report that is not contested by both sides of the aisle is the clear recognition of Russian attempts to be involved in the election process and the number of indictments that mm -hmm. flew from that, flowed from that. And he also mentioned the effort to pass legislation across the aisle with White House undeterred, that there's both a Republican and Democratic consensus that this is wrong and they have to go forward. So from your perspective as a prosecutor, what, what are you looking for how you distinguish this First Amendment problem versus the indictments that we got out of the Mueller probe. And it took the Mueller probe to get those indictments. And should we expect more of those type of indictments coming out mm -hmm. of Maine Justice? Well, let me put it to you this way. You know, the, if you look at the special counsel indictments, there's basically two theories, right? There's the social media part of it, and then there's the hacking part of it. I can start with the second part first because those are very clear violations of federal criminal law, right? The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, criminalizes essentially intruding into other people's computer networks without their authorization or consent. So irrespective of who, who violates it, 
right? They are in violation of the law. If you're a Russian actor, if you're an American actor, if you're Russians and Americans who have conspired to create that kind of activity, that's in violation of American law. There's always the uh, principles of prosecution that we go through to decide whether or not to charge somebody, and that's a whole different set of, you know, uh, that's a different conversation. But in terms of hacking, that's a very clear violation of federal law, and I, I don't think that's particularly controversial. The social media side of it is a little more interesting because there are First Amendment issues. Um, with that said, I, I don't think it's particularly controversial to say that foreign actors outside the United States don't enjoy First Amendment rights. It's not clear to me what their First Amendment uh, rights are. Now, there is a First Amendment right for Americans to receive information. So that's where there's a little bit of tension, um, and I think academics have sort of explored that question, and it's a, it's a very interesting one. But uh, certainly the Mueller uh, team, the special counsel team, uh, identified uh, essentially efforts by foreign actors to impede American uh, government processes, what we call client conspiracies. So conspiracies to essentially gum up the, the processing of American government. We typically see those charges in tax cases when uh, individuals um, essentially impede the work of the IRS. But that theory can just as legitimately be expanded to the Federal Election Commission, uh, and that's part of what the allegations in the indictment, and one of the indictments was, is that the foreign actors were essentially, through covert and uh, improper means, causing uh, false reporting to the FEC and to other sort of organs of our government that are meant to help our democracy run transparently and openly. So those are novel theories, but at least in my view, those are perfectly credible theories, and those tools are available to us. I'm not gonna comment on any pending legislation or anything that's currently out there now, but I think there certainly are areas where we can sharpen some of our tools. Um, part of those questions deal with registration requirements, which we're strengthening and we're trying to um, ensure that there's more transparency in sort of what kind of money is coming into the system and who are the actors are. Uh, and there are other areas that, that we can talk about as we go forward, but as a basic you know, arsenal, I think we actually have what we need. The question is, building our investigative capabilities to make sure that we understand what's going on and then highlighting it and bringing cases as appropriate. Right, and as we know, uh, General Nakasone at uh, Cyber Command mm -hmm. has been taking a much more active response with the Russians. And it's been quite clear that there are active measures that are being done on the covert side, not the overt side. And that's another response that we've taken and the question is, will that be effective enough and how we will use both the legal arms, and uh, you want to address Yeah, this just, just briefly, I mean, there's also, the, there's, there's the legal dimension, there's also, for American companies, there's also violating terms of service. So uh, by falsely provi uh, uh, providing information on social media platforms does violate many of these companies' terms of service, and that, that, that can then kick in steps that these companies can take. So, so part of the issue is, what happens when you have a Russian troll reinforcing a correct statement that is a appropriate criticism, but is amplifying it. What is your, the democracy, how do you think you, we should respond to those type of problematic situations? So that is a perfect segue into um, what I think is actually the, the first step, which is transparency. And I think there is still a real lack of understanding. I mean, we know a lot more than we did two years ago, three years ago. 
Um, but we still don't, I mean, there's still so much that we don't know. There's been great work done by some academic researchers. There was a, actually a study of the 2016 election and um, uh, done by um, a researcher at the University of Wisconsin. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, of course, brought in some really great technological researchers to look at the data that they had received. Um, the report um, lays out a lot of information about Russian activity, but there's still, because of the nature of social media and the way in which messages are targeted to individuals, so they may not ever be public, um, it is very hard to, s we still don't have a full handle on exactly what's happening, I think, and I think that is really the first place that we need to figure out before we can get to the next steps. Just um, this week, Facebook announced um, that it was taking the next step in a research partnership um, that it's doing uh, to provide um, to a slew of researchers um, much more data. But it's, they've been talking about this for a year. The data is not going to be available still for a few months. It's, it's moved quite slowly. And so I think that that is a place where there, there still needs to be additional sure. work. As I look in the audience, uh, there's a lot of gray matter out there. And I mean more than just hair color. Um, there's some people who are quite knowledgeable about Russians. And I'm, I'd like to open up to a few questions before I would continue in order to... We're going to end this episode here. For more of the questions from the audience and video of the event, visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Thanks for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find links to today's topics in the notes to this podcast or on our website. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABANATSEC. We welcome your feedback. If you'd like to come to one of the committee events, our next breakfast event will be on June 13th in downtown Washington, D.C. with the Director of the Office of Foreign Assets Control at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, Andrea Gacki. Visit us online at americanbar.org slash natsecurity where we'll be posting registration details shortly. Thanks for listening, and as always, see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.